The famous preacher Vance Havner said, it's better to die for a conviction than to live with a compromise. That's the attitude of the main characters of the story that we'll be looking at today. These men would rather die for their convictions, their principles, than live with the compromising of those convictions. There are not many people who have that kind of character, are there? We're beginning a new book study today. We're going to be working our way through the book of Daniel, beginning today. The book of Daniel records events from the life of the man Daniel and prophetic visions that God gave to him. Some of the stories from the book of Daniel are some of the most familiar in the world. Two in particular stand out and are well known. There's the story of Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, being thrown into the fiery furnace. And, of course, the story of Daniel himself being thrown into the lion's den. And we'll take a look at those stories when we get to them as we get our way through the book. Now, for some Christians, the book of Daniel has also become synonymous with end times prophecy. And I think it's interesting to note that the book of Daniel actually contains more fulfilled prophecy than any other book in the Bible. Prophecy that's already been fulfilled. The central theme of the book of Daniel is the sovereignty of God. God is ultimately in control of everything, no matter how small or large. He directs the course of individual lives and entire empires. He directs current events as well as future events. Some of the ways the sovereignty of God is displayed in the book of Daniel include God using Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonian Empire, to discipline the people of Judah. God protecting his people while they live as captives in the foreign land of Babylon. God humbling the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, removing him from his throne for a time to remind him of who is ultimately in charge. God knowing and revealing future events in our world. God raising up and bringing down the kingdoms of humanity. And God ultimately establishing his kingdom over all. The big lesson is this for us, that God's people can trust Him through everything that takes place in their lives. No matter how far out of control this world looks to us, it is never out of God's ultimate control. Every proverbial dog in our world, no matter how big and bad it is and how loud it barks, is on God's leash. Some people mistakenly think that God's sovereignty and God's goodness are, su- are supposed to translate into an easy life for them in this world. But, but that is never promised to any of us. Nor does it have a direct connection to God's sovereignty or His goodness. Some people blame God for their life being difficult or painful or disappointing. They believe God owes them better than what they're getting in this life. They are entitled to more than what they have in this life. And so they get mad at God. They blame God. They question the goodness of God. They question the love of God when things are not going well in their life the way that they want them to go. They ask, how can a good God allow this to happen? But they don't remember that if God were to eliminate all of the bad stuff in this world and all of the problem makers in this world, then they themselves would be one of the things removed from this world. 
See, we can't have it both ways. We can't have our own personal life trouble-free and not also be deleted from the scene of our own life. Because we might not want to admit it, but much of the trouble in our life is self-inflicted, self-generated, self-made. Well, God is in the act of redeeming a fallen, broken, sinful world. And to accomplish that, it requires a level of wisdom and finesse that is beyond us. We need to trust Him. He knows what He's doing. We need to trust Him. He knows what He's doing. We can learn a valuable lesson from Daniel and his friends by observing the way that they respond to difficult and painful and disappointing stuff in their lives. Rather than questioning God's goodness and getting mad at God, they affirm God's sovereignty over their personal lives as well as over everything else happening in this world. They trust God with their lives no matter what happens, no matter what the outcome might be, whether they are saved or burned up in a white-hot furnace. They know that what is happening in their lives is not random and without purpose. They have a position of submissive trust in God, convinced that their God has their ultimate good at heart, and this gives them peace, even in the midst of the awful things in their lives. Hebrews 12, 7 says, Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and lives? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. Well, let's flip over to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. It's in the Old Testament. If you have to consult your table of contents, go for it. The page number in my Bible is of no use to you. I'm sure it's not the same exact Bible as yours, so it won't help if I tell you it's on page 785. <clears throat> and if your Bible is on your phone, it's definitely not of any use to you. The first chapter of Daniel tells the story of four young Jewish men, Daniel and his three friends, being plunged into the middle of a foreign country's way of life, facing the choice of whether they will compromise their belief in God or remain true to Him. Verse 1 says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God, these he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. The book of Daniel picks up the story of God's people where it leaves off at the end of 2 Kings and the end of 2 Chronicles. Some 8 
hundred years of the Jewish people metaphorically spitting in God's face finally brought his judgment against them through the invading army of the Babylonians. The northern kingdom of Israel had already been wiped out by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. because of the rampant idolatry and paganism that had taken over their culture. The southern kingdom of Judah would survive for almost another hundred years before it too had gone too far for too long and judgment came. When the Babylonians conquered Judah, they deported many of the people living in Jerusalem. The Babylonians took back to Babylon all of the best people, including royal family members, the wealthy, the educated, the skilled craftsmen, the artists, and the musicians. The only people that they left behind in Judah were the unskilled and the poor. Well, among the Jewish people taken to Babylon in 605 B.C., were Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who will be introduced to us in this chapter. We are now in the great city of Babylon in the mighty Babylonian Empire, the major power of that time, with Nebuchadnezzar as king. Verse 3, it says, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar had a very modern policy for that historical time period, enlisting into his service the best and the brightest that his kingdom had to offer regardless of their origin and nationality. Those that were selected as potential candidates for royal service were entered into an extensive and rigorous three-year training program under the direction of a man named Ashpenaz. This training program was a crash course in all things Babylonian, including their philosophy, their religion, languages, sciences, politics. The school was one of the best educational institutions in the world at the time. Well, just like many who were chosen from other conquered peoples that were now a part of the Babylonian Empire, young men from the royal families and nobility of Judah were also selected to be included in this training program. And verse 4 describes the general qualifications that the candidates had to meet. They were young men. It's believed that those chosen were young teenagers without any physical defect. They were handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. 
In a nutshell, the most promising and talented young men that could be found were chosen. Daniel and his three friends were in this best of the best group. One of the first things done to these young men when entered into this training academy was the changing of their names. The Babylonians changed their names to strip these young men of their previous identity. They were going to be remade into the image of Babylon. They were no longer Israelites. They were no longer members of their families of origin. They were being assimilated by the Babylonians. A person's name was a significant part of their identity, much more so than than it is in our own day. It tied you to a heritage, a lineage, a history, a people, a personality, a character. All of this is stripped away when the Babylonians take their names from them. At the same time, when the Babylonians give them new names, they're being given a new heritage, a new lineage, a new history, a new people, a new personality, a new character. Giving them new Babylonian names placed a stamp of ownership on them. You are now the property of Nebuchadnezzar and his gods. And you are no longer the property of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Daniel, which means God is my judge, is given the new name Belteshazzar, which means Bel protects his life. Bel was one of the Babylonian gods. Hananiah, which means Yahweh has been gracious, is given the new name Shadrach, which is believed to mean servant of sin. And sin is the name of another one of the Babylonian gods, not the same as sin, like sin in your life, different. Mishael, which means who is equal to God, is given the new name Meshach, which is believed to mean I am despised by my God. Azariah, which means Yahweh has helped, is given the new name Abednego, which means servant of Nebo, and Nebo was again another one of the Babylonian gods. Notice that the meanings of the original names of all four of these young men connected them to their god, Yahweh. And these new names that they are given obliterates any connection they have with their god, Yahweh, and then either connects them with a Babylonian god or mocks the god that they had believed in. See, this is all part of an attempt by the Babylonians to reboot these young men in the way that they look at and understand who they themselves are and all of reality. The training program not only included intellectual preparation for service in the king of Babylon's court, but it also included physical preparation. It included in the physical preparation a a very special Food diet, it says here, to ensure that these young men look their best. There was probably some kind of physical fitness program too, but that's not mentioned in the text here. These students were given some of the best foods that Babylon had to offer, coming directly from the same kitchen as the food served to the king himself. Well, it's the food and the drink being served to Daniel and his friends, which is going to create a critical, decisive moment for them. 
It often happens that way in our life. Those critical moments of deciding if we are going to obey the Lord or not come when we least expect it sometimes and in areas that we don't anticipate. The Jewish religious law lays out a number of dietary rules that the Jews were supposed to follow. Certain kinds of meat, for example, were not to be eaten. Some of the foods being served to Daniel and the others were probably on this list of forbidden foods. The food was probably also being prepared in ways that violated the dietary laws of the Jews. And finally, it's likely that virtually all of the meats and wines that were being served to them had first been offered to the pagan gods of the Babylonians, as was standard custom of the day. This would have rendered virtually all of the meats and wines unclean and forbidden for the Jews to eat. Daniel and his friends are having to decide if they are going to live a compromising life or not. Are they going to continue to follow the word of God and the practices of their religion, or are they going to let it all go? There are some tremendous pressures facing these young men to compromise their beliefs and their convictions, to follow the word of God or not. There were probably other Jews in the academy besides these four. And they may have been afraid that if Daniel and his friends make waves about the food and the drink, that it is going to bring retribution on all of the Jewish students. So they're sort of like going, chill, dudes, just to eat it. There was the pressure from peers to conform to what everyone else is doing. There was the internal pressure of wanting to be like everyone else. There was the temptation to not make a big deal out of something seemingly so minor as what kind of food was being served to them. There was the temptation to follow the adage, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. When in Babylon, do as the Babylonians do. When they were back in Judah, it was fine and good to follow all of the Jewish laws and customs, but they're not in Judah anymore, and who knows if they will ever be back in Judah. They need to start behaving like the people in their new land and culture. They need to embrace this new life and leave the old one behind. There was the pressure of blowing a great opportunity for a very good and privileged life, serving in the king's royal court. I mean, this is the kind of job that you dream about getting. This is the opportunity of a lifetime. There was the pressure of being seen as a troublemaker in the eyes of the man who could have them killed with the snap of his fingers. They could be killed for not going along with the program. We face similar pressures in our life against following and obeying the word of God, pressure from our peers, pressure to be like everyone else, pressure to not make waves, pressure to adopt the popular point of view of the culture, pressure to compromise for financial and professional gain, pressure to not be seen as a troublemaker, and so on. How Daniel and his friends respond to this situation will have an impact on how they respond to the next situation in their lives. See, every time we compromise our obedience to the Lord, it makes it easier to compromise the next time. And every time we choose to obey, it makes it easier to obey next time. Daniel, Daniel and his friends, they're laying a foundation 
that will help or hinder their character for the rest of their lives. We face the same issues and consequences every time we choose to obey or compromise. We are either helping to build up our character or to tear down our character. The choices we make today affect our tomorrows. Every time, every choice either adds to our character or it diminishes our character. There are very few neutral choices. They all matter. Verse 8 says, But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. It says, Daniel resolved. That word resolved, the King James translates it, he purposed in his heart. The New American Standard translates it, he made up his mind. The Hebrew words here, it's a combination of words which literally mean to set one's heart a certain way. Daniel determined in his heart and mind that he was going to obey the Lord no matter what the consequences and the cost might be. Well, once Daniel had made up his mind that he was going to obey the Lord no matter what, then he set about making wise moves in order to accomplish that, given the circumstances that he's having to live under. So he goes to the chief official and he seeks permission to eat foods that will allow him to maintain his purity before his God. We too, we need to first resolve to obey the Lord, and then we need to set about making choices and taking actions to accomplish that. It's not enough to just decide to obey. We need to then also take the needed actions to obey, right? I think it's important to note how Daniel approaches this issue too. He doesn't make a huge scene in front of everyone. He doesn't threaten anyone. He isn't disrespectful to those over him. He doesn't belittle anyone for not sharing the same convictions that he has. He quietly, humbly, discreetly goes to the one over him and discusses the issue with him. Have you ever seen a person who makes a public spectacle of their religious convictions? I don't do that. I'm a Christian. What's the impression that they make on those around them? People are not impressed with their godliness, are they? They're usually put off by the person's religious arrogance, is what happens. There are times when we need to proclaim our faith from the rooftops. But humility and showing respect are always to be part of how we do things. Verse 9. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. 
Notice first that God helps Daniel live an obedient life before him. The first sign of this is in the way that the Lord makes these officials sympathetic toward Daniel. In verse 9, it says that God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. The relationship that Daniel has with the authorities over him, it also reveals the kind of life that Daniel has been living before these people. He, he's not a hypocrite. He's genuine. He's respectful. He's humble. He lives by his word. He's earned their respect by the way he lives his life. Well, the official basically says to Daniel that he would love to help him out, but it's too risky. If Daniel and his friends start looking sickly and pale, and it comes out that the official had given them permission to eat something other than the royal food that the others were eating, the king would have his head. Because I, I, I'm sorry, Daniel, but I, I'm not risking my life for this. Verse 11, Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. So Daniel, he asked him to give him a chance to prove that he and his friends can survive on this alternate diet that allows them to maintain their religious convictions before their God. Because the Lord gave Daniel favor in their eyes, they agree to this 10-day test. And Daniel, he's putting his faith in action, isn't he? Rather than giving up, he's willing to put his faith on the line. He says, put us to the test. And he trusts in the Lord that the Lord will prove himself faithful to them. 15, at the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. So at the end of the 10-day period, Daniel and his friends, they look healthier than anyone else in the academy. The Lord has been faithful to Daniel as Daniel has been faithful to him. The Lord helps us to live an obedient life before him. 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. And we see that scripture being fulfilled in the lives of Daniel and his three friends here, don't we? The Lord wants us to be successful in our desire to obey him and do the right thing. He's not trying to make us stumble and fall. Seventeen. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. 
And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. So the Lord blesses these four young men greatly, and he puts them in places of influence in the Babylonian Empire. It says Daniel served there till the first year of King Cyrus. Daniel serves in the royal courts of Babylon for the next 65 years of his life. Consider this. Nebuchadnezzar believed that he had been preparing these young men for service in his kingdom. In actuality, the Lord had been preparing them for service in his kingdom. The same is true for us. The Lord is preparing us for service in his kingdom. While we often think that we're simply being prepared for some lesser pursuit. Remember that the next time you're feeling like you are in some dead-end situation in your life. The Lord can use everything in our life to prepare us for service in his kingdom and build into us the kind of character that he wants us to have. Every situation that we're in, the Lord is using that. Let's find peace and reassurance in that truth. Well, in closing this morning... This opening story in the book of Daniel is a beautiful picture of the faithfulness of the Lord to those who trust in him. These four young men, they find themselves living in a world totally foreign to them in every way. A world that called out to them to compromise at every turn. A world that sought to annihilate everything that they were being... A world that sought to annihilate everything they were before coming to Babylon, wanting to just wipe out what they had once been. But they were not alone. The Lord was with them. It says they resolved in their hearts to live uncompromising lives before the Lord. And the Lord took care of them and he caused them to flourish in an environment they should have withered in. Same can be true for you and me. We live in a world that wants to, us to compromise our beliefs and our convictions at every turn. We are faced with temptations within and without every day. The Lord has promised to be faithful and provide everything we need to stand if we will resolve in our hearts to follow him rather than compromise. We're told in 2 Peter 1.3, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you for the example of Daniel and his three friends. Their courage, their faith. And Lord, I, I pray that, that we would seek to follow their example in our own life. Lord, you say you have given us everything we need to live a godly life. Help us take hold of that promise, Lord, and, and to live it out in our life. We thank you that we're your children. We thank you for your good hand in our life. Lord, we ask you would continue to build into us your character. May Jesus live in us and through us, Lord. Make that so in Jesus' name. Amen.